All right, I'm going to be preaching uh, from uh, the, oh, there we go, it's a short one, uh, Hunger and Thirst. I'm going to be preaching from the Beatitudes. I did a series on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus goes up on a mountainside, and uh, these are the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, blessed are those who mourn. This is a sermon series I did uh, probably about 14, 15 months ago, as we continue the greatest hits of Redeemer uh, series. So there's still, I still want to do a couple more sermons. If there's a particular sermon that has impacted you, uh, that you really would love preached again, uh, you just come up and, uh, and tug on my sleeve and say, hey, you remember that sermon you preached? So this was somebody that came to me and said, this sermon really impacted me. Would you, would you preach it again? And so I'm going to do so. So this is Matthew 5, 6 through 8. So Jesus goes up on a mountainside and he sits down and he teaches his disciples. And uh, this is the second set uh, in those Beatitudes. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is God's word. Well, I was channel surfing a couple days ago, and I came across that classic movie, a new classic, if you will, The Hunger Games. Remember that movie? Uh, It's uh, still out there. It's uh, an interesting concept to give a little backdrop on it. There were these, uh, it's kind of a post-apocalyptic story of the world has been divided up into 13 different districts. And there's a central city, and the central city keeps uh, these 13 districts subservient to it by controlling uh, the food, essentially. They keep resources so scarce that people are right on the edge of starvation. Um, but once a year, they would uh, appoint or elect or choose two uh, youths, age 12 through 18, from each district. And they would come and they would uh, participate in what was called the Hunger Games. And they would be forced to, to kill as everyone watched for entertainment with the goal of whoever won would receive a tremendous bounty that they would, uh, that they would uh, uh, never have to work again. And more important, they would always be full. They would never have to play the Hunger Games again. Uh, it's a very interesting story, a very interesting concept. And it grabbed me because I thought to myself that we play the Hunger Games in our world. Not necessarily for food, though for some in our world who live on the brink of starvation, that is life. But rather, we play the hunger games for the soul. As I've said before, there are two stomachs that a human being has, one for physical nutrition, but the other for spiritual sustenance, for a satisfaction of the heart. And indeed, that poverty of the heart is even greater, even more painful uh, than hunger for the body. It was Mother Teresa that said, we think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked and homeless, but the poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty. And Mother Teresa is right. The greatest desire of the human, we need food for sustenance to sustain our lives, but our greatest desire is to be wanted, to be loved, to be cared for in a way that really only God can do. 
And so we play the hunger games going around the world looking for someone or something that can satisfy our souls, yet only being full, never finding satisfaction. But amidst this, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus is preaching in the Beatitudes, these blessed are you's. And a little background on the Beatitudes. We think of the Beatitudes kind of like a modern day 10 commandments. These are the things that we're supposed to do. But I want to suggest to you that the Beatitudes are not about what we achieve, but rather they're about what we receive when we come to Christ, when we decide to follow Jesus. See, it's not so much as we've entered the kingdom when we become believers and followers of Jesus, but the kingdom has entered us, giving us the power to live a kingdom life in the midst of a fallen world, a life of plenty in a world of starvation. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we manifest these beatitudes? How do we enjoy them in this world? How do we participate in this kingdom life? For even though these qualities, these characteristics are now, have entered into us with the kingdom of God coming into us, they must be cultivated. The kingdom life that Jesus has called us to is not a passive life. It's an active life in which we lay hold of the gifts and the promises which God has given to us. So these beatitudes are reminders of who God is remaking us to be. And they offer us the choice, will we go back to our old way of living or will we embrace the new life in Christ? Because if we continue to hunger for this world, it will always lead to emptiness. But if we hunger for God, it will always lead to satisfaction. I want to touch on three points, one for each one of these beatitudes. The first is that hunger proves, if you have spiritual hunger, it proves that we want God. Number two, mercy proves that God wants us. And then finally, the third beatitude about seeing God. Seeing God proves that we will both receive what we want. Because if we hunger for the world, it will always lead to emptiness. But if we hunger for God, it will always lead to satisfaction. Let me start with our first point, that hunger proves that we want God. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He's speaking to people who lived in the ancient Near East, and they were very familiar with physical hunger. See, it was an agrarian society, and so basically the people were either eating or starving based on what was going on with the conditions and the crops around them. Indeed, for many of them, they would have labored that day for the wages that would feed them that night. And they were living on a day-to-day process. We're all familiar to some degree with the pangs of hunger, though perhaps not to the degree of, of the less fortunate in other areas of the world. But Jesus speaks about hungering and thirsting, not for food, but for righteousness. Jesus isn't saying hungering and thirsting for happiness, by the way which is definitely the the thing in America that we search for, happiness. Remember Jefferson who said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, 
uh, that everyone is endowed with these inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By the way, Jefferson was speaking of a civic happiness. He wasn't speaking of personal self-fulfillment, but that's really not the point. The point is that you really can't find happiness because happiness is a byproduct, isn't it? If you search for happiness, you'll never find it. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we have to ask the question, what is righteousness? What is he talking about? If you were to translate this literally, you could translate righteousness as this conformity to a norm. Righteousness is conformity to a norm. What do I mean? If you had an Apple iPhone and we were all to take it out and we were to go to that section where it would list the minutes and the seconds, you will discover that everyone's phone is ticking at the exact same time with the exact same number. I actually used to have one of those Apple watches and you could do the Mickey Mouse face. And what's amazing is if you and other people had an Apple watch and you looked at the Mickey Mouse foot, it would literally be tapping at the same time. It's frankly a little bit creepy, right? It's a little bit creepy, Mickey Mouse tapping. But the reason is because all of these phones and all of these watches are synced through the cell tower to one central atomic clock. They are conformed to a norm. So happiness are those who are hungering and thirsting to be conformed to a norm. And that norm is the character and the commands of God. It's those who are hungering and thirsting to be conformed to Him, to His standard of what life is supposed to be. It's really three different areas that we're hungering and thirsting to be conformed to a norm. Number one, to be found as righteous. In other words, it's those who have a profound dissatisfaction with their heart. That they know that they're not worthy to come into the presence of God. And they're hungering and thirsting to be found, somehow to be proclaimed or declared as being conformed to the character and commands of God. It's a legal almost sense. But the second is they're hungering and thirsting to live in accordance with the character and commands of God. Meaning every day when we're living out our life and we find ourselves falling short in so many ways in terms of loving God with all our mind, our heart, our soul, and our strength, when we find ourselves not loving our neighbor as ourselves, when we find ourselves not engaging and loving the way we're supposed to, there is a dissatisfaction because there's a hunger and a thirst to be conformed to the norm of living like Jesus lived. And finally, there's a hunger and thirst for the world to be righteous, for the world to be like that passage that was read in Revelation earlier during the praying the scripture. A world where there's no more pain and no more crying, that everything is right, that everything is the way that it's supposed to be, that it's holy and that it's good. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this, the character and commands of God. I think here's a good example of someone, if you're wondering who, what does it look like a person who hungers and thirsts 
for righteousness. This is Psalm 119.97, where the psalmist writes, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than the, than the honey to my mouth. This is an example of a person who's hungering and thirsting to be conformed to the norm of the character and commands of God. Indeed, the Bible says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst in this way. The word blessed could be translated as happy. Remember how I said that happiness is a byproduct. It's not something you can find. But what Jesus is saying is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, one of the things they will discover as they're doing so is there's a happiness and a satisfaction of the soul. How do we develop that hunger? As I said before, if you are a Christian, that hunger is within you. But it must be cultivated. See, the Beatitudes are like dominoes, each that fall after the other. It starts out with, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's those in the beginning who realize that they don't meet up to the commands of God, who are poor in their spirit, who are humble, if you will. And it moves from being poor to mourning. Blessed are those who mourn because of their sin, because of their unrighteousness, for they will be comforted. And it moves from mourning to meekness, to being ready and willing to do whatever it takes to follow God, which leads to hunger. See, we must cultivate this hunger and thirsting for righteousness by choosing to hunger for God and not for other things. It was John Piper that said, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video but the primetime drivel of triviality we drink in every night. See, there's a difference between being full and being satisfied. When I married Lee Ellen, I married into her family, and Lee Ellen had a cousin. His name was Clyde, and he had a, a chromosome deficiency, a mutation of some sort. And the, and the, uh, the disease that he had was called Prater-Willi syndrome. I don't know if you're familiar with Prater-Willie syndrome. It's a horrible, horrible disease. And really has two manifestations to the person that has it. The first is they have a low IQ. And the second is they're always hungry. They're never, ever satisfied. They always feel hungry, irregardless of how much food they have in their body. And so Clyde grew up, and it took a while to recognize this, but that Clyde would never stop eating. He would eat indiscriminately until you forced him to stop. And Clyde had to grow up with a padlock on his refrigerator. 
with his mom watching every single step of his because if he had the opportunity and walked by a trash can, literally those hunger pains would overcome him and he would eat and eat. His mother cared for him amazingly well, so much so that he lived far longer than most people with this disease. But Clyde grew older and it was harder and harder to watch over him. And one day, Clyde had the opportunity and he ate and he ate and he ate and he didn't stop until his stomach burst and Clyde passed. See, Clyde's genes were his enemy and Clyde was full but never satisfied. So what are you hungering for? Are you maybe full but not satisfied? You're a teenager and you desperately long to be accepted by the community in your school. You want to end up at that table. You want to be on that team. You want to be noticed by that crowd. Those are not necessarily bad things until they become ultimate things. You're a spouse and you desperately long for the approval of your other spouse. And you'll do whatever it takes to receive it. Maybe you'll be full, but never satisfied, for no one can take on the role of God. But Jesus says, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, we have a hunger, right? Bruce Springsteen said it best. Everybody's got a hungry heart. It's just a question of where we place it whether we find satisfaction or merely fullness. Jesus said, place your hunger on me. He spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. See, here's the truth, my friends. You have to put down one thing to pick up another. We only have one mouth. We can only eat and consume one thing. And Jesus has set the table, his very life, and says, come to me. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Well, this brings me to my second point. If the hunger we have in our hearts proves that we want God, mercy proves that God wants us. Jesus goes on saying, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As I've said, these beatitudes build. They go on from poverty to mourning to meekness to hunger. Now they shift to the world, to how we relate to other people. Blessed are we who are merciful, are those who are merciful to others, to other people, for they will be shown mercy. But what exactly is mercy? We understand grace, that grace deals with the problem of sin, but mercy deals with the consequences of sin, how they're manifested in the world. Remember the Good Samaritan? I think that's probably the best example of mercy where Jesus said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But this teacher of the law wanted to justify himself and said, 
well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of a, of a man who fell, uh, who was on the road to Jericho, who fell in uh, with robbers who beat him uh, within an inch of his life and left him lying on the side of the road. And a priest comes along, but he doesn't want to deal with it, so he moves to the other side. Then a Levite moves to the other side as well, but a Samaritan comes along, and it says that he had compassion on this man. Literally, the Greek means he, uh, splagma is the word. It means guts. It means he was moved in his guts seeing this man lying on the side of the road. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn and he cared for him. The next day he took out two silver coins and he told the innkeeper, look, watch over this man and when I come back, if you need even more money... Uh, And Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert of the law said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's because this man in his guts was so moved to mercy for this person, he crossed racial barriers. He crossed financial barriers. He crossed time barriers. See, love and mercy are intertwined with one another. That's what mercy is. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Now, Carlos, are you saying that a condition of receiving mercy from God is first showing mercy? And I want to suggest to you that it's the exact opposite. What was really going on with the Samaritan was the inside coming outside. Remember, his guts being moved. See, we don't control our Christianity. Our Christianity controls us. Mercy comes from our guts, from the inside of what Christ has already done in our lives. That was Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees, wasn't he? Oh, you whitewashed tombs. You clean the outside of your life, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and the outside will be clean as well. So you know what mercy is? Mercy is a mirror. It shows our heart. It shows what's going on inside as it's manifested outside. Jesus illustrated this with an example of a person who was forgiven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. There was this one servant who was brought before this, uh, this uh, king who owed 10,000 talents, which was a, several million dollars. And this man couldn't pay, and so the king ordered that he and his family be sold into slavery to pay the debt, which was a pittance. But this man fell on his knees and he he begged the king and it says that the king was moved to mercy from the inside out. And so he had compassion and he canceled his debt. But then this man with the canceled debt went out and he found someone who owed him 100 talents, which is about 20 bucks. And he choked him and he said, pay back what you owe me. And he sent him to debtor's prison. And when the king found out about this, he was enraged. He said, should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
See, what is this story illustrating? What is this, this beatitude illustrating? It's illustrating that the gospel changes us from the inside out. Because we have been shown mercy, we have the ability to show mercy. And mercy moves us. I don't know if you're familiar with how Christianity grew to its worldwide prominence. You know, it started in the middle of nowhere with Jesus, who was an uneducated, unsanctioned, appointed rabbi who never traveled more than 100 miles from his home. And it endured tremendous amount of persecution in the beginning, and yet 300 years later, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. How is that possible? Well, there was a, a book, Rodney Stark wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity. And he argued that one of the main reasons for the success of early Christianity was the Christian emphasis on caring for the sick. During the late Roman period, there were a number of devastating plagues. There were three big plagues, the Antonine Plague in 165, the Plague of Cyprian in 251, and the Plague of Justinian in 541 A.D., by the way, I think it would be a horrible thing to have a plague named after you. The Carlos Plague. Remember the Carlos Plague? Oh, gosh. The thing was a bummer. No, but what happened was that these Christian communities would have had much better survival rates if they had, uh, uh, first of all, they cared for one another health-wise, but they, while everyone else was fleeing the cities, they stayed in the cities and cared for those who were dying and who were sick even though they weren't Christians. And when people saw the mercy, the guts, the compassion, it was so attractive to them that they said, I want to follow Jesus Christ as well. See, mercy costs, my friends. And where do we get the money? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the reality is when you hear that story of the Good Samaritan, we rarely, rarely ever realize that that person lying on the side of the road is us. We are the ones broken, condemned by sin, forsaken, and rightly so. But Jesus is the Good Samaritan who saw us lying in the road, broken by sin, and came and cared for us who poured his blood on our wounds that we might be healed, who paid the price for us on the cross that we might be reborn, justified, and righteous. We were the ones that owed the million, several million dollars in talents and couldn't pay back. And yet Jesus canceled our debts. Jesus crossed the street to be near you and me. See, mercy is the proof that God wants us. And so we must look into the mirror of mercy because it's supernatural. How are we to have mercy and cultivate mercy in this world? Because it's easy to be so overwhelmed by the needs. It's to go to the cross. It's to kneel at the cross and to remember Jesus Christ who crossed the street, who paid with his very life that we might be born again, 
and made whole. It's not just coming on Sunday and hearing the gospel preached, but it's learning to preach the gospel to yourself every day, remembering that you're a free man, a free woman, that God so loved you that he gave his very life, that you might have everlasting life. Christianity, before we focus on what we need to do, we must focus on what he has done until it moves us in our guts and we go out into the world to love the lost and the least lying on the side of the road. For the hunger for this world will always lead to emptiness. But the hunger for God will always lead to satisfaction. This brings me to my final point. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The deepest desire of man is to see God, who lives in unapproachable light, the scriptures say. See, when you love someone, you want to see them. I had the privilege of marrying uh, Alexander and Delaney, who are right over there, not to put them on the spot, uh, in, uh, you know, probably a month ago. And it's, I always have the best seat in the house when I marry people. And uh, I see the anticipation on the groom's face as the bride is coming down. They want to see each other. They want to be face to face with one another. Our deepest desire is to see God. But the scriptures tell us who are the type of people who may see God. Psalm 24, 3, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. The one who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear to what is false. What this passage is saying is that the ones who get to see God are those who live with a pure heart. An undivided heart is the literal translation. Undivided means single-minded. I think of King David, the man after God's own heart. If there was a man who lived, could have lived with an undivided heart, it was supposed to be him. And yet one day, God looked, uh, David looked at Bathsheba and he desired her and he sinned, which led to a chain of sins. And David's prayer at the end was this, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In other words, David realized I cannot do it on my own. I can't ascend the hill of the Lord. I can't see God because my heart is not single-minded. See, there's only one way in the end to get a clean heart. And that's to acknowledge that you don't have one. I guess that's why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is, in the gospel is, you may not have a pure heart, but I do, and I'll give you mine. Jesus is in the transplant business. I don't know if you've heard this story about this child in uh, Great Britain who has a rare heart condition and actually dies five to seven times a year. 
His name is Aaron Sweeney. And he has a rare heart condition where his heart can stop for up to seven minutes each time he suffers a collapse. He is only alive thanks to his mother, Jelaine Clark, who has been trained to revive her son using a handheld defibrillator, which he keeps with her 24 hours a day. This sudden death syndrome is what it calls. It's called. Indeed, the young boy whose heart failed as recently as last month will be undergoing an operation later this year to fit a small permanent defibrillator under his skin that will trigger automatically if his heart begins to fail again. This is a physical picture of what Jesus Christ does to us. Think of that relationship between that son and that mother. Aaron gets to look on his mom and his savior every day because he knows that he would be dead without her. And his mother is watching over him every minute, every hour to give life in the place of death. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And what Jesus is saying is that I will give you my heart. For he is the only one that ever lived with an undivided heart. When yours stops, I will bring it to life again. For I am with you and in you. Indeed, he has been implanted into us so that we would never die but have everlasting life. Whenever you feel like you're dying, when your heart is failing and divided, look to Jesus Christ. In the moment, our defibrillator who sustains us, who gives us life, who hovers over us, that we can look into the face of our Savior. Well, I'm out of time. As I said, these uh, Beatitudes are not a prescription, but a description. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? They're your gift, your blessing. But they are to be cultivated as we participate in the kingdom life. Choose to hunger and thirst for Christ. Choose to receive the care of the Good Samaritan Christ who has come to us, who bandages us, who cares for us. And choose to let your heart be renewed day by day, moment by moment, by the one who sustains us from inside. If hunger proves that we want God, mercy proves that God wants us. And a pure heart proves that we both get what we want. For the hunger for the world will always lead to emptiness. But hunger for God will always lead to satisfaction. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that when we were lying on the side of the road, you sent Jesus and found us. And you put us back together. And indeed, you resurrected us from the inside out. God, let us not be satisfied 
or try to find happiness in anything other than you, for we will always, always ultimately be empty. But your promise is for fullness. For you came, Christ, that we might have life and have it to the full. Let us not be satisfied with anything less. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.